0: I'm Doug McClennan, the editor of ArtsJournal.com, and welcome to The Undertow, our new arts journal podcast that will appear more or less every week, I think. What is The Undertow? It'll focus on stories and issues in arts and culture, not so much about the shows themselves or reviews or breaking news per se, but more about some of the ideas and trends under the surface that animate what's happening now in our culture. The Undertow that helps carry ideas along. So why a podcast now? Well, of course, everyone is doing them, but maybe a little background would help. Little known fact, before I started the website some 20 or so years ago, I had imagined Arts Journal as a TV show of all things. In my imagination, AJ would be a kind of 60 Minutes for the Arts, a weekly public television show that would focus on big ideas. I went to the Pew Charitable Trust to see if I could raise some money. We talked about it for a while, and at some point, Stephen Ureis, then working in cultural funding and a very smart guy, asked perhaps the essential question, why TV? No one watches TV to see the arts. While not literally true, of course, it was an early lesson in matching what you wanted to make with who you were trying to make it for, An Arts Journal became a website. A little later, I had the idea to make a daily audio version of the website, cultural newscasts that could run on public radio. Jim Russell, the legendary creator of the Marketplace radio show, liked the idea, and we worked on it a bit, seeing if we could find some stations willing to take a flyer on it. Well, we couldn't, and I set the idea aside. I imagine the undertow as a different kind of animal, though. I think that while there are lots of products in the culture, shows, performances, exhibitions, projects, that there's an underlying and ever-changing swirl of ideas and circumstances that make some things resonate and others disappear almost as soon as they've been created. The kind of art that might have worked two years ago exists now in a very different context. Who thought six months ago we'd be talking about war and then energy and food shortages, for example? Or that two-and-a-half years ago, we'd have had a clue that we'd be wary of being in crowded spaces together now. These circumstances frame or influence or inform the creativity we engage with. For this podcast, we'll look at two to three stories per week to talk about how they fit into the larger context of what's happening now. If you're a reader of the Arts Journal website, you know that our interests range across arts, culture, technology, and science. Pretty quickly, I suspect I'll start looking for people to interview for the podcast, just to broaden the ideas. If you have any ideas for stories, for topics, for guests, I'd love to hear them. Shoot me an email to theundertow at artsjournal.com or check out the contact links below wherever you got this podcast. So, this week's stories. Today, we'll talk about Russian artists and the Van Cliburn Piano Competition, the quirky new Mellon Foundation logo that I both love and hate, and then finally, some observations on the reemergence of the arts after the COVID pause. All this in a moment. Story one. Over the past six weeks, it's been both surprising and heartening how much of the world has stepped up to oppose Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, and a substantive response, too, in condemning Putin's war. It's brought together and unified the West in a way it hasn't been for decades, and it is unwinding Russia from the international community, economically, politically, and culturally. Culture, of course, was a tool of the old Soviet Union which invested heavily in trying to demonstrate that its culture was among the best in the world. So it's not surprising that as the war started, that cultural institutions in the West canceled their collaborations and partnerships with Russian institutions, and they cut loose those Russian artists who have supported Putin and or who have been in favor of the war. Most visible among these have been the conductor Valery Gergiev and soprano Anna Netrebko both artists who have publicly supported Putin. Netrebko was banished from the Met, while Gergiev lost his music directorship at the Munich Philharmonic and gigs at the Verbier Festival, Rotterdam Philharmonic, La Scala, Carnegie Hall, and elsewhere. It's difficult to imagine he will ever regain his career in the West. Then there were the more problematic cancellations, the young 20-year-old phenom Russian pianist Alexander Melafeyev, who had appearances cancelled in Canada even though he had come out against the war, even when it was personally dangerous for him to do so. The Montreal Symphony explained that Ukrainians in Montreal had asked that he not appear, and they wanted to be respectful. Making a different choice was the Van Clyburn Piano Competition, which last week announced that among the 30 competitors chosen from 388 pianists who had applied for this May's competition in Fort Worth are six young Russian pianists. Jacques Marquis, president of the Clyburn Foundation, included a statement with the announcement to explain, quote, the Clyburn must and will remain true to its mission as an artist supporting cultural institution, and we are dedicated to the power of this art form to transcend boundaries. We make no distinction between non political artists based on their nationality, gender, or ethnicity. We stand firmly with the music community around the globe in its commitment to these ideals. End quote. Hmm. I think it's a problematic stand and particularly for the Clyburn. The Clyburn is sometimes described as the Olympics of the piano world. Held every four years, it attracts some of the world's best young pianists. And though its influence has declined in recent decades, it can still be a boost to young careers. It is named after Van Clyburn, the young Texan who shot to fame in 1958 by going to Moscow and winning the Tchaikovsky competition, then the world's top piano competition. At the height of the Cold War, no one thought that an American could win. And Clyburn came home to banner headlines in newspapers across the country in an actual honest-to-God ticker tape parade in New York City. He was an international phenomenon, and the win helped spark decades of cultural diplomacy and exchanges, a real demonstration of the power of culture. One imagines that Marquis and the Clyburn believe that they are leaning into this cultural diplomacy pedigree by inviting the Russians, which, by the way, is the largest contingent from any country this year. And they make a point in their statement about separating art and politics. But surely more than almost any other institution in the world, given their founder's origin story, they must understand that the power of art to shape our perception of politics and international relations. And in this case, these six are representatives of Russia. Should any of them win, they will be celebrated as representatives, as products of their country. The Clyburn, by the way, makes a big deal of the origins of its contestants, listing their home countries prominently throughout the competition. So what about the argument of not banning non-political artists? Yes to banning Gergiev and others because they support Putin. No to banning Barishnikov and other Russian artists who have condemned Putin. But what about those who don't or won't say anything one way or another? That's a little tougher. And what about these six? Have they declared themselves non political, as the Clyburn seems to suggest? More important, because none of them is well known, at this stage of their public careers, who they represent is more powerful than who they are individually. Should one of them win, their achievement boosts Putin in Russia a symbol of Russian accomplishment in a world that has turned against Putin for his brutality. Putin has shown by his friendship with Gergiev that he understands the power of having artists on your side. And the Soviets, and now Russia, have consistently used artists as a boost to their standing in the world, as has America and other countries. Van Cliburn was probably one of the biggest examples of this. The Olympics have excluded countries when they have transgressed against international norms. Perhaps the Clyburns should be admired for trying to keep art and politics separate, but I think that's too easy. At a time when the international community is banding together to condemn Putin's war on Ukraine as a moral outrage at what will be great cost to everyone, it's difficult to condone a piano competition that wants to act as if it's business as usual. Marquis's statement that the Clyburn stands together in its stance on values with music institutions around the world is disingenuous, misleading even. The statement may be literally true when it comes to stating the values and what they are, but the Clyburn, by being a showcase, even a launching pad for Russian talent, is implicitly supporting the Russian state something that even the corrupt International Olympic Committee hasn't done when Russia violated international rules. Okay, that was probably way more opinionated than I expected to get on the first podcast, and I realize that decisions like the one that Clyburn has made are difficult for institutions pulled in many directions. But there you have it. Story two. Foundations come in all shapes and sizes, of course. But one fairly consistent characteristic of foundations is their logos, their visual identities. They tend to be solid, conservative, traditional, conveying importance of purpose, of mission, of a commitment to changing the world somehow. Rarely did they give much insight into the messiness inside most foundations the tough decisions, the struggling to find purpose, the desire to be effective, the changing course, the starting all over again, the fear of failure, the investing in ideas that you hope will be winners. Indeed, the hearts and souls of many foundations are hidden deep behind forbidding structures of grant officers and assistants and board members and procedures and rules and reporting that seem designed just to be formidable, serious, consequential. In Seattle, where I live, the biggest foundation in the country, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is in residence at an enormous corporate cruise ship edifice docked at Seattle Center. We know that important things happen there because it just looks important. All of which is to say why the new logo and rebranding of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, to be known henceforth as just the Mellon Foundation, is something of a shock. Okay, it's difficult in a podcast to convey just how odd the Mellon's new logo is, but I'll try. Instead of the crisp, elegant letterage of the old logo, the name rendered in black with a single red bar swapped into one of the letters, in which I imagine the old logo maker thought of as a kick-up-your-heels gesture. The new logo is, well, a kind of kinetic worm that burrows through the name in the vague shape of an M. An M, of course, if you were a six-year-old learning to draw your alphabet. The worm isn't a single color, or a consistent shape either, for that matter. As depicted on the Mellon homepage, and I'll include a link below this podcast, The colors and textures of Mr. Wormy change seemingly on a whim. One of the textures looks like a green shag carpet, another a glistening tube. Sometimes the worm snakes through the O's in melon foundation. At other times, it hangs one end of its body off a background image. It's visceral, corporeal even. It looks organic and alive and a messy, not serious. I actually hate it. But that's my limitation, I realize. I'm a symmetry kind of guy. I like solid and clear and familiar tradition. But I can also really, really love this logo. It doesn't look like anything else. And it's a damn sight more interesting than that bland, perplexing new Facebook meta logo, the line to nowhere that Facebook came up with to rebrand its way out of its many failures. The new Mellon logo was designed by Eddie Opara at Pentagram, the big and ubiquitous go-to New York design and branding firm. You can read the foundation-speak explanation about the rebranding and what it's supposed to signal on the Mellon homepage. But perhaps the biggest thing I like about it is the purely unconventional look. It instantly stands out, uniquely identifies who this is. It's playful. It's malleable. It's mercury. It looks like it would slip through your fingers if you tried to grab a hold of it. It's flexible, it's reinventable, something that responds to its surroundings, that makes a statement in a way no Garamond would dare. A worm, a tube. I really hate it, you understand? But bravo, it's brilliant. And lastly, story three. Of course, the biggest story in the arts over the past two years has been the impact of COVID. There are so many things to say about it. The world, after two years of pandemic, is a very different place than it was two plus years ago. And most arts organizations are in some process of re-emerging from reduced or modified activity. Thankfully, there have been some great efforts to measure impact. The SMU Data and TRG Arts are the main ones, and they've been issuing periodic reports on what's happening. One of the latest, for instance, reports that unemployment in the arts was double what it was in other sectors, 30% versus 15% nationally. Despite dire fears of looming catastrophe at the beginning of the pandemic, and considering the collapse of paying work for many artists, arts institutions, for the most part, managed okay. Some used the time to create new things, rethink what they do and who they serve. Others went into various forms of hibernation and are only now re-emerging. One undertold story is how the infusion of assistance from various COVID relief programs, from government programs like PPP and Save Our Stages, to stepped up philanthropic and individual support, as well as soaring values in endowments for those that have them, actually suggest healthier financial positions coming out of the pandemic than going into it for some organizations. But there's a potential nasty reality coming. COVID relief programs are generally done. Arts institutions are spending heavily on programs they hope will convince audiences to return. And there are an awful lot of half-empty theaters and concert halls so far. Yes, we just went through the Omicron surge, which unquestionably suppressed audiences. But continuing uncertainty and the fact of a whole lot of people who got out of the habit of going out is a problem. At the very least, while spending has roared back as shows open, even a medium ramp up to pre-pandemic attendance will cause some big financial holes. It may be that this next transitional period of uncertainty will be even tougher than the COVID shutdown was. Well, that's all for this week. I'm still trying to figure this out, so I welcome your suggestions, ideas, and criticisms. I'm starting this as an audio podcast, for example. If you think it would work as a video podcast as well, so you could see what that melon worm looked like, let me know. As every podcaster says, if you liked what you heard, please click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. I understand that's important. All right. See you next week.